Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these series, I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod about what they've learned about life and theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. In this episode, I sat down to talk to Declan about Shakespeare and love. So, hello, Declan. Hello, Lucy. So today we're going to talk about a pair of Shakespeare plays and the relationship between the two of them. One of them is Romeo and Juliet, and the other one is As You Like It. And I know that you think one feeds into the other. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. I was thinking about art exists on the road between, you know, whatever the piece of art is and the person who's viewing it or taking it in. So it's not work of art, it's act of art, and the act of art is a living thing. So in a way, Chekhov or Shakespeare can't own Chekhov or Shakespeare plays. It's it's the passage between them and us that matters, that will always be changing. And not just from production, from production, but from night to night, and from audience member to audience member. So there are, there are certain things they can't control. If we stop just thinking about Romeo and Juliet, we get become so sentimental about Romeo and Juliet that we think of them as being good people caught up in a sea of awfulness, which is this mad row between the Montagues and Capulets. But actually, the people who destroy Romeo and Juliet are in fact Romeo and Juliet. And in the balcony scene, it's very clear to me that the love they have for each other, they have plenty of warm feelings for each other, but they pay no attention to each other at all. You know, she's like the East and Juliet's the sun and he comes out with all sorts of extraordinary notions and her bounty is as boundless as the sea. And, um, Shakespeare often uses sea imagery, like with Othello, with Macbeth, with Orsino, when he goes into trying to show somebody who's in the grip of a kind of self-obsession, normally about, well, about love very often. And at the end, they pay for that. You know, they pay for the fact that it's very dangerous to to be in love with somebody and just keep it at the warm bath feeling and not let it develop through attention into seeing who the other person is. And I think that Romeo and Juliet at the time, there's some evidence to suggest it became incredibly popular with people quoting it as the greatest love poetry ever written. Um, But I think there's a great irony at the end of it um, that it's largely because of their self-obsession that they're dead. You can't just blame the other people. They've they've done something that was really ill-advised. It's not like love can become toxic if it's not coupled with attention. Love is toxic if it's not coupled with attention. It'll come back to consume you and the person you believe that you're in love with. So we're sent these massive hormonal feelings of being in love to begin a relationship with with new babies, for example, with the new thing. We, We get sent for free this honeymoon period. But the deal is that out of that we develop through attention and we can actually allow ourselves to become closer to the other person rather than always just travelling around with an image of that person in front of you. Um, And that's absolutely a a terrible thing. So it's not sometimes toxic. Love without attention is always toxic. And I think that's what Shakespeare is saying quite clearly in Romeo and Juliet. But of course... You know, we like goodies and baddies and we love judgment. And, of course, you know, we can make the Capulets and the, the gangs the, the, all the evil heart of Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet is the sort of good people who suffer because of these outside pressures. But I don't think that's what happens in the play at all. Anyway, Shakespeare did very well out of Romeo and Juliet. We know that it was a huge success and people were going around quoting it. And it was like a, a, a huge commercial hit at the time and still always is actually if, even if it comes to us in terms of west side story or what have you have you and then i think shakespeare thinks and he writes as you like it 
and I think As You Like It is a response to Romeo and Juliet, because the whole central section of As You Like It, it's like Juliet is teaching Romeo what love is. So in the middle of that play, instead of Romeo and Juliet, we've got the pair of lovers, Rosalind and Orlando. And the plot device there is that Rosalind is forced to disguise herself as a boy for her own safety, and Orlando doesn't recognise her in disguise. And in this disguise, she ends up teaching him lessons about how to love her. It's an extraordinarily weird, wonderful little plot device. Well, to begin with, Rosalind is absolutely over the moon that Orlando's in love with her. And he, he, she does this by, he's been putting, putting his poetry on the tree, and she's so delighted she doesn't notice how terrible the poetry is. But Celia does. And after a while, she realises there's a problem, that he's sort of in love with love, like Orsino, like Romeo and Juliet, that, and he can't really see her, and he can't see through her disguise, which is probably not a very good disguise, but he can't actually see who's in front of him. But it's not just the fact that she can't really see who's in front of him, it's the fact that he's in love with himself being in love, and he needs to really pay attention to her, otherwise it's just going to remain as the, as the warm bath that goes cold. And so she gives him desperate lessons through the play in the guise of this young man who he still fails to realise is her, of what it is to truly be in love. And she gives him lessons on how to really be attentive to the person whom you love and how to use the gift, that big sort of hormonal whatever, that big warm, wishy feeling that you're given, how to use that to come closer to another human being. And that's not so easy because everybody loves that feeling of falling off. Why wouldn't they, you know? But you've really got to do something with it. Otherwise, it's going to go sour and have terrible consequences. And that's the kind of really important, much more important than life or death, that that she has to do that. And we hope at the end of the play that he has learned. He does seem to suffer some sort of um, change. He, he can change his position and see, yes, it, but the important thing in loving you is that I pay attention to you. And the whole comedy, the wonderful, wonderful thing about that play is this series of lessons that she gives him. Sometimes they're very witty. So they're about her dealing with somebody who's impossible. And there's that wonderful quote about how nobody ever died for love, you know. Men have died from time to time, worms have eaten them, but none of them for love. But it's that, for me, is, is absolutely mighty and is a kind of... It, it sets right what was, went a bit amiss, I think, in Romeo and Juliet. She's trying to get him to pay attention to something. She's trying to get him to see the world as it really is and to see a world outside him. And it's it's an uphill struggle. And the lessons go on and on and they don't work and she gets fed up. And But she's always bent on getting him to understand the greater part of love is paying attention. And most importantly, paying attention to her. It's the wonderful thing, I think, about looking at this section of As You Like It mm. like that mm. is it gives Rosalind so much to lose in these lessons that she's teaching. I mean, if he doesn't get the lesson, this isn't going to work. No, it's more than that, I think. that If she doesn't manage to do this, um, her whole cosmos will come to an end. And in a way, she will never have existed. So the stakes are really high. He must learn this fucking lesson. And she goes on and on and on to try and get him to see in different ways. She's very funny. She can be skittish. She can do this. She can do that. She can sulk. She can be very intellectual. She can do all sorts of things to just wake this guy up. Um, and he does sort of seem to wake a bit. But it's also something that I think you're amazing at doing in everything that you put on stage is making it very dangerous for everyone on stage. 
that the breathtaking stakes of what there is to win and lose are the highest they possibly can be. And in a way, that is exactly what makes these scenes heartbreakingly funny. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. I'm delighted to hear you say that. Um, That's exactly what we try to do. And that's why what I was talking about in the last episode about existence really matters very, very much. Because the alternative isn't just that she's going to lose this nice-looking young guy in the forest. It's not that. It's like her whole existence is going to come to an end. Everything absolutely depends on it. And, And that is also the intoxicating thing about love, is it makes you feel witnessed i mean one of the things we were talking about in the last episode about existence is that there's a fear that every character in every play has Mm. that they need to bring themselves into existence they need to make themselves matter in the universe all the time and they're always um, afraid that that if they don't do what they feel compelled to do then they will never have been they'll they they won't they won't be they won't even feature as a blip on the universe but if someone's in love with you and someone sees you and then you exist, the feeling is intoxicating. But also, you have to fight for it. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's one of the most terrifying things is it often happens between parents and children, actually. Children, you know, having terrible rows with their parents. And what's really happening in the row is the kids are saying, I want you to see me. And the parents are saying, how do you mean you want me to see you? I love you. And I just want you to see me. But I love you. But I want you to see you. But I love you. Those rows erupt and they are desperately important and there's something terrible at stake to be just not seen just sod your love just see me (laughs) and that's what she's saying enough already with the love just see me because romeo and juliet don't see each other and they end up dead as a result yeah but also you know it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that i mean you know you know we're lucky if our parents can see us and some can see their kids better than others and vice versa and to see the people that we love to sort of see them and the thing that stops us seeing each other i guess is our self-obsession or our fear or whatever it is there's lots of things but why don't we pay attention why is it so hard to pay attention and i think that to pay attention to something else involves a kind of risking losing something of yourself because you're saying this thing outside me can be different from me and you're kind of risking quite a lot because you put yourself slightly out of control if you pay attention to something. You allow something to surprise you. To allow yourself to be surprised, you put yourself out of control. To be grateful, that's connected with attention. You put yourself out of control because you're saying, I wouldn't have had this if it weren't for you. Um, and you, you admit a, a, the fact that you're not complete of yourself. And that's one of the reasons why attention implies that you're not full in yourself. But I'm not a total good to go i'm not a complete human being i'm paying attention to you because you, know, you can surprise me and um that, and that will change me so you, you make yourself very very vulnerable really when you pay attention and that's why it's uncomfortable in a way and that goes back to something that i think is a touchstone of nearly everything that you say in every episode which is it is most exciting to watch a play when the characters are profoundly out of control yes when the character's out of control, the actor's in control, but they're, they're, but they're strong enough to let the character be out of control. Yes, that's wonderful. And the most wonderful joy as a director is to work with an actor to enable that to happen. But you're going to be setting up something with an actor that's going to be surprising every night. So you can't, um, you know, you, you, you can't create a machine that's going to work. You're going to have to sort it out in another way. So is your proposition that Shakespeare saw that Romeo and Juliet had basically been misunderstood, that the irony 
the lesson, if you will, at the end of Romeo and Juliet had been overlooked because of the audience preferring to see it as a, a glossy romance, which it's not. It's about two very self-obsessed teenagers who do something completely destructive to each other. Yes, I think so. I mean, I don't think any artist, you know, say, you know, it's such a pity your play was such a huge hit, you know, you're such, sorry you had such a hit because it's so misunderstood, but you know, thank you. I, I very much like the fact that I've had a hit. Thank you very, very much. But I think it would have given him chance to and time to reconsider what he really wanted to do with his life and thank god he did and that's my way of looking at it i'm not saying it's the truth it's something that i find useful to think in terms of the play that as you like it kind of speaks to um romeo and juliet and i think that shakespeare really points it out at the beginning of romeo and juliet i mean Mm. romeo is absolutely in love with another woman called Rosaline. Called Rosaline. Um, And he makes it very clear at the beginning of the play that Romeo is blindly and inappropriately in love in a way that that is not about this woman at all. And then when he drops that love at a second's notice in order to fall in love with Juliet, why should we think that it's any different? You know, he's already told us how Romeo loves at the beginning of the play. Why should we let him off the hook in this second relationship? Well, I know. And, and with Mercutio, we think, oh, he's very witty, he's very funny, he's very charming. Um, but of course, he is a cynic in the Queen Mab speech. It's sort of a cynical speech. But, do you know, in a way, he's kind of right, because his friend Romeo is going to die. And actually, it is too rash, too sudden, too ill-advised. They have no idea about the other person. My, my short-term advice is that if somebody loves you, uh, somebody tells you that their bounty is as boundless as the sea, run like hell, <laughs> because you're in trouble. That's what I'd say. Call me cynical, but I wouldn't go for that. So when someone says something like, my bounty is as boundless as the sea, like Juliet does, that's the kind of love that is so over-glamorized. It's a kind of fictional, idealized well, no, version but, but of The love. operative word is my. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. And also, you know, I love you more, I love you more than anybody can else love each other. I mean, he sends it up with Goneril later, Goneril to King Lear, when she says, you know, I love you more than words can wield the matter. We can't say, I love you, I will love you unconditionally forever. We'd love to do that. We'd all be, love to be able to say that, but is isn't how it pans out. It's not how it works. And it changes, and you do have to develop attention. None of us are let off that particular hook. And it's actually quite funny in, in the balcony scene when Julie asks Romeo to swear, and she gives up. And she's like, oh, do not swear. Because he keeps, keeps on coming out with the same old Romeo stuff. Julie is actually quite perspicacious and sees that Romeo isn't really seeing her. She says, yes. don't swear by the moon. <laughs> oh, swear not by the moon, then constant moon at night. Yeah, exactly. Do, yes, it changes so much. Don't swear by something that changes. Swear like me. Because you know, but the thing about me is, um, my bounty is bounty. And you think, oh, okay. But of course, like us all, and I'm the first to say I'm guilty, it's far easier to see faults in other people than it is in ourselves. And very often when we point the finger, we have to see that three fingers are pointing back at us as well, that what I'm saying about you is actually about me. But something that seems to constantly come up through all of these podcasts is that Shakespeare's attitude to love is suspicious. Like he sees the potential for love to be something incredibly dangerous, incredibly destructive, which unless handled with care and respect for the other person can be a real sinkhole. It's a kind of wonderfully frightening view of love that he has. Yeah, I I think, for me, I think it's a great view of love because, I mean, love is very, very hard. 
and it is the most dangerous thing because in a way because it's the because the heart is a treacherous place and we can easily fool ourselves about things and we we can have enormous feelings for another person but it doesn't entitle us to say that we'll be there forever we can say i'll do my best i think we can make vows and try to and, and do our best to uphold them i mean that's a good thing and you sort of set a benchmark for how you're going to be but it's going to be different and you have to understand that people change and that you change, you know. I'm growing old now and I see a lot of things in the world changing and it frightens me to see a changing world. But I sometimes think it's a defence against seeing actually the thing, the thing that's changing I'd like to stand still is in fact me because I'm changing too. <laughs> and it's discombobulating and I'd love to be able to make sort of these big things. I used to when I was younger. Oh my God, I certainly used to. I'm sure my bounty was boundless as the often. But actually, <laughs> 50 years have passed. And um, I mean, people saying, are you saying that love is ambivalent? The answer is, yeah, of course it is. It's a feeling, and it's a feeling that should help us to pay attention to somebody else and not destroy them. But you can love somebody and destroy them. And what's so interesting about comparing the plays like this is that we sense Shakespeare's sort of taking a lap around the same idea. He's coming back and, and re-excavating this thing about the potential destructiveness of love and how dangerous it can be. And what's delicious about this is it feels like it gives us a little glimpse of Shakespeare, this kind of enigma at the heart of all these plays that we know so little about. It gives us at least a bit of a glimpse about him as an artist. Perhaps. I think so. But I think it's probably more to do with the fact, realising that how his work is taken by the audience. And he will have sat in that auditorium and heard them and felt the audience and see how they hear, how they receive the play. And you have to build that in as an artist. You know, you can't just cut off the person who's going to receive it. You have to have some sense that, this, that what I'm offering is going to be part of a relationship and it isn't going to come into its full life until somebody waters it with their attention outside. And I think he thought about that, having seen performances of Romeo and Juliet. He, he'll, he'll have wanted to, I think, seal up the doors. Difficult to explain what I mean, but it's an important point. Um, because we very often want to smuggle in a fudge, you know, because we want to have the nice happy ending, the nice judgmental thing, he was bad, he was good. Um, and Shakespeare doesn't kind of want to give us that possible way out, really. And I think in As You Like It, he's more um, hard-hitting. He's shrewder, if you like, and he has a better idea of his audience and knows how to really focus the audience's attention on what he really wants them to see. And that is this miracle taking place when Rosalind gives Orlando instructions on paying attention. And it's quite funny because he doesn't see she's there. And that's so terrible. So... In short, would you say Shakespeare is a very good teacher about love, but maybe not in ways we've been taught to believe? I think Shakespeare really wants us to grow up and pay attention. And um, the love's great, but actually it's the attention that really matters. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. The music you're hearing was composed by Sergei Chakrashov for Cheek by Jowl's production of Three Sisters. And if you want to see documentary footage of Cheek by Jowl's production of As You Like It, you can find it on the company's YouTube page. Stay tuned in for more bonus episodes to come. And until then, stay well. Stay well.